0: I need to make it perfectly clear, hot beverages right here. Please take them, enjoy them, use them, repower yourselves. As we get started today, I just wanted to, uh, first of all, welcome you. I'm glad that you're here, that you're braving it out on the cold, that you've decided this holiday weekend you could still be here, so thanks for coming. Like we say at the end, usually, I'm going to say at the beginning, it's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. I wanted to give you a challenge this week as we get going right from the very, very get-go. There's this season that we're in now that a lot of people call Lent, and a lot of people do stuff for Lent, or they actually stop doing stuff for Lent. And if you're one of those people who that's been your habit, say, go for it, do it. If you haven't been in that habit, I want to challenge you this year with something new. Do whatever you were going to do anyways, but then let's try and add this. Instead of just saying, because I love you, God, because I want to focus more on you, I'm going to remove something that distracts me. Instead of just doing that, I'd say, because I love you, God, we're going to take this theme that we just uh, were watching up here, this Romans 12 idea that says, I want to give all of you, I want to live as a living sacrifice, that you would take as a challenge, smiles for Lent. That between now and Easter, you look to put 100 smiles on different people's faces. By doing whatever you can, by giving somebody, um, opening a door for them, uh, cooking a meal for somebody, buying somebody a coffee, being charitable, being, going out of your way, give them a card. Do something that you start to imagine, what else could I do to give a smile? And then, once you've done that, we want to be able to share in this together. So we're going to post on our Facebook whatever you tell us you've done. If you like to use Twitter, we've got a hashtag that you can throw on there. Um, whatever it is, smiles for Lent. Um, Text me the information. We'll put them up. We're not going to put your names up unless you really want your name up. It's the idea that this is just happening around us. One hundred smiles that you went out of your way to try and create. That we're going to try and show people the love of Jesus. If you want to tell them about it, that's fine. But if you want to just do it, even better. Go out of your way. What can I do? They can be inside your house. They can be your neighbor's. They can be people that you don't even know their name, but you just met them in the parking lot. There's going to be some snow that needs to be shoveled. There's going to be um, things that need to be moved from one place to another. Anything that you can think of that you can consciously say, I'm going to put a smile on somebody's face. And if they don't actually smile, that's not the point. The point was that you were putting forth the effort. I'm starting to think about how I can behave in a loving way. And the great thing about this is it doesn't matter how old you are because we can all do things for somebody else that makes their life nicer, happier. And in doing this, we're going to give them the love of God. We might not tell them that's what it is, but that's what we're going to do anyways because when we live out what the kingdom is, the kingdom comes into existence whether or not we put a sign on it. If you want to put a sign on it, no problem. But take this as a challenge and then tell us, Because somebody else is going to need to be encouraged. And they're going to look for your idea. And they're going to say, that was a fantastic idea. I never thought of that, but I could do that. Or because of what I saw there, I could do this. Wouldn't that be fantastic? So send those messages in. You can send them to me by email. You can send them to me by text. You can put them on your Facebook account and just put my name on it. And I will take them and I will put them on our Facebook page, on our Twitter page. And we'll start to be saying this again and again that we can make a difference in how we live. We will make choices that are loving choices. And then we won't be able to say, well, I don't know, what'd you do this week? Nothing really stands out. Because now you have a focus, you have a thought that says, I can do something, something small, something medium, something monstrous, where you gave somebody else a smile. Do you think we can do that? Do you think that you could do that? Will you tell me? Yeah, see, that's it right there. That's the truth. Because I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing a whole lot. I don't want them counting what I'm doing. It's nothing to do with that. It's momentum and movement. Share it with each other. I'm going to help you do that. That's all I'm saying. So as we get started today, put this in your head right now. Start doing it today. You could do it even in church. What can you do that's going to put a smile on somebody else's face? First thing you can do is prepare your heart for worship. Alright, so we're gonna sing some songs together, and as we do that, we're gonna tell ourselves some truth and we're gonna remind some things um, back to God as well. So pray with me as we get started. Kind Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for the love of Jesus coming to earth to set us free. Today we want to focus on you, and we're gonna ask that you're gonna meet us. Meet us where we are, because sometimes we don't we don't come here and really feel like smiling at all. And so, God, I'm gonna ask that you're gonna be able to um, meet us here today, give us a sense of peace. A sense of hope, a sense of love, a sense of you. That's what those things remind us of. They're called the fruit of the Spirit because they look like the Spirit of God. It looks like Jesus. Make these things come alive for us today. If we've got joy, then help us to share our joy. Help us to be kind to each other and to honor you with all that we do. And an all-
1: Good morning, church. Uh, my name's Jonathan, and uh, I'm going to be reading today from Mark chapter 8. It'll be up on the screen here if you don't have your Bible, but... Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, I'm standing up
2: here for a reason, and that is uh, there's a saying that everybody says, God's timing is always perfect, and seeing how it is outside... I'm going to Costa Rica on Tuesday, so his timing is definitely perfect. No, not for that reason. Um, I'm uh, going on a little bit of of an adventure. Uh, I'm going on a missions trip um, on Tuesday morning for about 10 days with a group of guys from California. Uh, It was like a last minute thing. Um, By the way, my name is Victor Morasic, so (laughs) you might want to know who I am. Um, So... It was, a, it was a tough decision. Uh, based on today, it wasn't very tough. But um, never done a missions trip before. Um, always wanted to. I would love that my family would have came, but more or less this is a kind of a, a guy's thing. They don't—they're not bringing their wives, and they're going to. We're going to be going to uh, Costa Rica to some children's orphanages. Um, these guys do BMX stunt biking and all that stuff. And so we're going to bring our bikes and, and do some stunt fun for the little kids and have some fun and preach the gospel to them. Um, we're also going to um, a peninsula somewhere. I've I got vague details of where we're going. I'm going to just show up and they're going to stick me in a van. And kind of doesn't sound good, sort of, when you think of it. Um, but we're going to be going to a lot of... Um, orphanages and we're going to go into the actual jungle where it's only four wheel drive vehicles are allowed so be praying for me that when I'm in the jungle that uh, I don't get attacked or something like that whatever but anyways I'm not concerned about it because God's going to be protecting us Um, these guys have been there before so this is going to be new for me Uh, there's about five of us are going to be going there's a gentleman that him and his family live in Costa Rica too so we're going to be teaming up with them Um, So I'm I'm truly excited about this. Um, Mixed emotions last week. I was kind of like, you know, nervous, excited. I mean, I've never done this before, so this is totally new to me. Um, But I'm excited to see what happens, what God's going to do amongst us, amongst the people that we're going to be seeing. Um, Not only kids, but we'll be seeing adults as well. Um, We're going to be going to some skate parks and stuff like that. Uh, something we just—I just got an email uh, a couple days ago. Something tragic happened to a guy who's riding there. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died. But um, it's going to be really important that um, not only that you guys pray for me, uh, but pray for those that are—we're going to be seeing um, that these people will be touched. Their hearts will be touched, and that they'll—they'll they'll seek uh, God's love, forgiveness, salvation. So we're. Uh, we're excited about this. Uh, my family's excited about it. Um, I don't know how Sandra is, if she's excited or nervous or whatever, but uh, I know that she wished she was coming, but there'll be another time where we're going to do family thing or something like that for a missions trip. But, uh, yeah, be praying for me, and, um, and I will keep everybody updated. Uh, I'll be probably be sending Graham emails or whatever and letting you know how things are coming along. So, um, yeah, that's basically what all i have to say. Thank you. Thanks, Victor.
0: Uh, Don't go away too far just yet. Um, the exciting thing for us is that Victor is, is, is risking, right? When we say what, what's happening with an into one when Victor goes and he's not here, he's risking. It's one more person who's decided, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to risk. It's going to cost me, and I'm somewhat nervous. But I will do as God prompts me, and I won't step back from that. And so when somebody from within our midst is going to do something like that, we want to stand behind them because this is a together. This will benefit all of us when somebody has that kind of risk. So to try and voice that and to pray commissioning and blessing on Victor, I've asked Kirk to come up and to, uh, to do that for us. So join with us as we do that. Kirk, lead us.
3: Okay, I was going to, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, when they gave a sacrifice, they would lay their hands on it before they slayed it. So I didn't want to lay our hands on, on Victor because I didn't want to uh, make him think that I was... Uh, Thinking anything terrible was going to be happening to him, but there was a verse that I want him to uh, to know that I want to claim for him. And when he uh, when he goes into that airport and those sliding doors go behind you, and you start walking, this is the verse that I want you to think of, Victor. And it's in First uh, it's, sorry, it's in Ephesians chapter one, and it's verse 17. And um, Paul is telling us how he wants us to pray. He's teaching us. Um, to pray and uh, in verse 17 it says I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the gracious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better and in this trip Victor I pray that um, God will let you in on something that he's doing that he'll give you, it says here, literally a revelation, and that you will know him better by that revelation. And uh, we, we, we send you away with a God that there's lots of things that are over our head. There's lots of things that are unknown. There's lots of things that we don't understand. There's lots of things that happen. But all those things that are over our head have been put under his feet. And... That's what I want you to know. When those doors slide behind you and it's just you and your bags, you're getting on a plane, buddy, uh, stand tall. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, I thank you that you love us, you care for us. I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for us. And Father God, I thank you that um, all these things have been put under your feet. And I thank you that our brother can go in peace He can go knowing, Father, that you go before him, that you are beside him like a friend, and you are behind him to protect him. I thank you for the the truth that we uh, have a great opportunity to pray for him when he's away and to add to his blessing. And I pray, Father God, that you would reveal to him great things about who you are, that you would show yourself. And, Father God, that uh, in this time that he would come back uh, with a deeper walk with you, we pray for those that he'll be seen. We pray that you would prepare their hearts even right now. We thank you. We pray your blessing. I don't want to love the way I loved
0: before. I don't want to love that way no more. Why have I been writing love songs for? I don't want to write them anymore. I don't want to sing from where
1: I sang before. I don't want to sing that way no more. Why have I been singing?
0: Continue on in our series that we've been looking at the kingdom and the caliphates. What does the kingdom of God look like, and what does the caliphate of Islam look like? We're learning a little bit about Islam, learn a little bit about Christianity, and how some of these things to come together. And uh, last week we started with uh, our response to ISIS, and what do we do with that? What does the Christian worldview do with this kind of situation? So we've got some notes for you in the uh, the handout there. There's going to be some notes on the screen. Notes in your web-enabled smartphone, if you would like, under the free app called UVersion. Look under Live Events, and you can find into one there, and you can follow along. Now, today I will tell you that there will be much more content in the paper handout that has more of a resource kind of side to it. So if you don't have one now and you'd like one, you can come and get one. If you wanted to get one at the end, you can do that. Or I'll tell you that we will have um, this document will go up on the website with the podcast so you can get the audio and you can have some of these notes. Just some things that you might want to come back to some point. In a, It's not an extensive, uh, comprehensive look, obviously. It's a, it's a survey. It's over the top kind of looking down. Um, we are in a world and we in this life we hear news and the news comes in and it's national and it's international and we're inundated with it. It comes around us. It comes over us sometimes. That's the way it feels and we listen to people and the response to the different news stories the way that they take information and process it, what emotions come out in that time and i'm sure you have been able to hear a number of emotions a number of thoughts about what to happen what we should do and as we do that i would like to encourage you before you make your response put your eyes on jesus again that as you hear the news you hear what goes on around you Consult Jesus, put yourself in that perspective, and then after you've done that, come back and look at those news stories, and the response that you have, see if it is guided then, first of all, by that impression, that sense, the presence of Jesus, before we simply react with emotion. Let's govern those things in a way that, that leads us into a habit of Jesus-focused responses. Responses. As we do that, part of that process is going to require increasingly that we become conversant in our neighbor's beliefs and in their their way of life. It's not any one type of person or kind of person. We don't live in a closed world. And your call was not to be a good Christian by yourself. Your call was to be a good Christian. And what that looks like is a light in a dark place. If you hide yourself away, your light... (laughs) in a lit room, and that's significant, but not as significant as we are called to be. We are called to bring the kingdom of God to life in this world, and the way that we live manifests that, but we need to know what our neighbors believe. We need to know what they think and how they think that way, how we will we be able to help people if we have no understanding about why they think what they think, or what the, uh, the, ground, uh, the grounding is that they've come from. Our goal is not to force people to become like us. Our goal is to love and serve people and increasingly display what Jesus looks like and what his kingdom looks like and let the Holy Spirit of God call them into something more. We are not here to win. We are here to serve and to love. And sometimes I think that perspective gets lost. When my big Bible comes out, you know my super Christian Bible, the one that's hard covered, it's a leather case and it's got a handle... So I can swing it. This is the way we feel that the gospel should go forward. Whacking someone on the side of the head. We are here to serve and to love. That is our calling. But we need to do that with understanding. And so in the interest of bringing civility and open communication as far as it concerns us, we need to learn. We don't need to pretend that we all believe the same things. That does not help. We speak honestly about what we agree upon, and we recognize areas of difference. You don't have to pretend to basically believe in the same stuff, which is the way society is pushing people. We seek controversy, and the way that we remove controversy is just to say that we're all the same anyways. That's why you shouldn't disagree. Very common line for people to speak like this now. But if you actually know anything about a religion, you know that they don't just overlap. They're not just basically the same. They're not all paths up the same mountain that gets you to the same destination. They're not all basically the same in the end. They're not interchangeable because they have pieces that sound similar. We don't have to emphasize those differences, but we do emphasize the truth. But we emphasize the truth always speaking in the way Jesus did, with grace and with truth. Always those two together. So, today we're going to start by looking at Islam, and the first thing we're going to do is look at the origin. And I'm telling you, brief overview, right? Not comprehensive. The brief overview, the origin of Islam came because the eighth, this is not my view I'm presenting. Let's make that clear. I'm presenting as if I was trying to explain to you this is what uh, I would believe if I was a Muslim. The angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad. Muhammad was born in about 570 AD. And he dictated God's words in Arabic. And that's what the Quran becomes. It's important for us to take a side note at this point right away. Jump into our Bible. Look at Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. It says, but even if we, that's Paul and the apostles, we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Okay, first of all, when we get to this kind of place, you say, Well, the angel Gabriel came and gave me this information. We're saying, That's awesome. But you know who outranks the angel Gabriel? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit provided what we call the scriptures, and so we have an immediate separation point. And an angel is under God, does the work of God, and so the, the possibility there for um, distortion. This is one of the same issues that we would have towards the Book of Mormon that it's an after, it's an addition. And so we focus on the scriptures as provided um, there. The Quran is the source book, it's the holy book, it's the one that was dictated to Muhammad. It has 114 surahs. Surahs are like what we would call books, or in this case they're probably more like chapters. Um, but they don't come in chronological order. And we, we do the same thing. If you, if you were to read through the Old Testament, it doesn't happen in chronological order. There's groupings that come together that that do books. The the New Testament is the same thing. We don't put the books in chronological order by date of um, existence. We put them into an order that works. So we have a similarity there. Surah 9, for example, is the last given out of 114. So they put them together like this. Only the Arabic text is the true Quran. So if you've read any part of the Quran online or you have a copy if it's in any other language than arabic it's not actually the quran the quran is the words of god verbatim in the arabic language so no translation it's a word-for-word exact compilation of what Allah God has said and they would say to us well that's very similar to your belief about the Ten Commandments we believe that the Ten Commandments dictated to God dictated by God to Moses and he scratches them down on stone tablets they would just say that's the entire Quran the exact word of God this makes and defines the Muslims as of people of the book their central focus is on the book and so when it comes to a comma when it comes to a word it's incredibly significant what it said because this is the word of God Now, in in terms of application and reading, how does it come together? The principle of abrogation is applied in interpretation. That means if there is a contradiction or something that you're unsure about, which way do we go? Later revelation supersedes earlier revelation. So the date of the arrival of the information, it's like there was an update. It's like your software, right? The original version of your software has updates regularly, and they refer as primary information to the most recent update. You have a problem with your phone, they say, first question, do you have the most recent update? Okay, now we can start. And so they would do the same thing with how they read. I provided you some uh, there of what, uh, what have been called the sword verses, or verses that encourage violence, um, just so that you could, if you ever wanted to go back, and you could read through some of those places. This is where the directions that are being lived out are coming from. Muslims learn from the Quran, but they are also looking to the example of Muhammad to figure out how to live it out properly. And the source text for Muhammad is called the Hadith. The Hadith reports what Muhammad did, what he said, where he went, how he responded in different situations. Um, It also starts to provide us with other things for a Muslim faith that are not strictly the words of the Quran. Other actions other models for what you would do and how you would live out the Quran as modeled by Muhammad. So it's a clarification. It's an elaboration. It's the first piece of exegesis of the Quran. And when we study a text, when we study the Bible, we call that exegesis. Used alongside the Quran for instruction. Not held to the same level, but very similar level. This is similar to what we do. We have a holy book. And we have a holy person. And we try to blend those two together to figure out how to live this thing out. We turn to both the Bible and to Jesus for instruction, direction, and example. In their minds, Muhammad is the closest, perfect, living example to follow and emulate. That creates problems. Because Muhammad lived more than one style of life. Which point in Muhammad's life are you going to reference? Which point are you going to choose to live by? And they say, the one that I would prefer. So there are places in the Quran that teach peace, that teach kindness and working together with neighbors, and that is absolutely true. So when you hear people say, well, Islam is a a religion of peace, you go, there are definitely those sections. But similar, again, to our Old Testament, you would say there are all kinds of passages that would lead you to that kind, gracious, loving, sacrificial God. But then we also have the sword passages that come in and they ask for something different. And specifically in Muhammad's life, you need to understand that he did some very, what we would say from our view, some very bad things. And the very bad things are increasingly governing the behaviors that we are seeing. But it's all part of a package. We need to understand that. So where does Jesus fit in for Muslims? They call Jesus Isa. Isa. And Jesus is considered a mighty prophet, a messenger sent by God. And he appears in 93 different verses throughout the Quran. He is not treated as a non-existent. He is absolutely treated as a significant person. He is called a prophet. And a prophet is to uh, a muslim it's not the same way that we might think of as a prophet to them a prophet is extremely high status higher than the angels they mean by prophet that he is sinless that he was a perfect model for humanity and he was sent and commissioned by God now immediately you can see the controversy right if you have more than one prophet and they're all sinless and they're all a perfect model but they don't all do the same thing how do you define what perfect is? How do you decide what the right model is when you have someone who says, absolutely, turn the other cheek, lay down your life, sacrifice for these people, and you have somebody else who says, that's it, it's time to slay them. A complicated model to follow. So Jesus falls under Mohammedan status to them, but a significant character that is not disregarded. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that He is called God's Word. They believe that He was born to the Virgin Mary. They believe that He cured lepers. They believe that the miracles that it it tells about are real. But they believe that the Gospels have been corrupted. They don't say that Jesus is a liar. They don't say that He's a false prophet, but that He has been misunderstood It's a misunderstanding to say that he is God in the flesh. He is a prophet sent by God. The next area of complication is that Jesus did not die on the cross. Someone else took his place. You can find a reference to this in the Surah 5, 157. This is the sharpest difference, the most pointed difference in views between Muslims and Christians. The Quran says that Jesus was not crucified. God did not forsake him. This is an incredibly important point for them that this is not the way God works. The Quran says that Jesus was not crucified. God did not forsake him, but God rescued him from the plans of his enemies to assassinate him. The details of his escape plan are not worked out and they're not disclosed. The Quran does not say what happened, but based on that information, There are many people who theorize, Muslim and non-Muslim, Muslim Muslim and secular people would both theorize on what happened with Jesus. And so one of those theories that's popular in Muslim circles is that Jesus' face was superimposed onto another person, that somehow he looked like another person. God supernaturally intervened and put this face on another person, Um, possibly Judas, um, who then went up on the cross and who died willingly or unwillingly. They don't know. You can make a story either way. Another view is another one that we hear frequently at, uh, well, these are the same views that we will deal with at, at the Easter kind of time. They come up about what about Jesus in the crucifixion, what happened. The other one is that Jesus did go on the cross. He was put on there, but he did not die. He swooned, he passed out, or he went into a coma, and people didn't know what was really going on there. Following that, Muslims do believe in the ascension. God physically raised Jesus up into the heavens where he sits in God's good care by his side until he returns for his second coming. There's agreement on the virgin birth. There's agreement on the sinless life. But disagreement on two key beliefs for Christians, um, that he is God's son and that he died on the cross. And so Surah 112, it would deal specifically with God does not have a son named Jesus. Jesus is not significant or special to God in any special other than human kind of way. Manifestation of this thing would be called the caliphate. And there's, a, of course, a variation of belief here as well. People don't all believe the same thing. The caliphate is seen, seen by some to be um, spiritual. That, uh, It would also have a side that people would say it's spirit, spiritual and physical. There is the connection the family-like feel, the connectedness, they call that the Ummah. And regardless of the physical kingdom, the motherhood of Islam still exists. That connection that these people have that crosses borders, that is um, a reason that they are connected to each other, they would say that in part is a caliphate, that we have a spiritual connectedness. But Islam also encompasses a political aspect. Since they believe that Islam is not just a religion, but a complete way of life, revealed by God with His exact words, um, it's not about how to go to temple for one day and work in the temple. It's about how to go to temple, but how would you interact with your neighbors? How would you decide what are citizens' rights? How would you distinguish what a law should be? What do you do with a thief? How do you make the whole system work. That political state is what we refer to commonly as the Islamic State or the Caliphate. This is not necessarily the same view as ISIS has. So, In a lot of this we track together on the idea of the interior kingdom. That Jesus said my kingdom is not of this place otherwise my followers would fight for me. It's a spiritual place. We believe the kingdom of God is a spiritual way of living that transforms the physical but it's not required to be physical. We believe in a brotherhood or a a global family that transcends nationality, political, or race boundaries. We believe that you can be one in Christ, that we can be um, brothers and sisters together, regardless of where we started from, because um, Christ brings us together. Um, It's fair to say that the caliphate is something that, in Islamic views, is not wrong to be achieved or acquired through violence as long as the violence is following a just war theory. The complication is that Islam teaches defensive war. How it is moved today is to recognize a potential enemy and make a defensive, preemptive strike. You see what happens there? You are going to oppress us, so before you oppress us, I'm going to punch you still calling it defensive, and yet in many places we would say that's an offensive mood, but that's how things work out now. And so as you take a step forward and fight to bring about the caliphate, to bring about Allah's will for the world, we no longer are just held by the if they attack us, we defend ourselves. We can now say, I think they're going to attack us. They've attacked us in the past. Because of that, we can attack here and be justified in having a just war theory. For Muhammad, again, you will see both examples. You will see that place where he's a persecuted minority and he will turn the other cheek. When he was in the position of power, different set of rules would apply. And they would say, it's like Jesus, when he's an oppressed minority, you turn the other cheek. But when he's King David or King Solomon, then the way that you live is entirely different. And so that position of power changes what you do with um, the set of rules that you live by. Violence has a proper, almost necessary place, and it only becomes wrong when it is taken out of that ethical place and done in the wrong time or the wrong manner. So a moderate Muslim in North America would be able to say that the reason that ISIS is wrong is not because they're trying to establish the Islamic State, not because they want a caliphate or a caliph to, to rule over it, Not because they want to overtake boundaries, not because they want to cross political lines, not even because they're using violence, but because the violence they are using doesn't line up with the just war theory. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about ISIS, and they would argue that it is fitting within that, and they are just doing what is necessary to get the job done. So many moderate Muslims would say ISIS are a bunch of loonies, they're kind of crazy, they've gone over, but it's not because of what they want, not even because of how they're doing it, it's because of how they're doing the how they're doing it, if you understand what I mean there. Um, The practical example they would give is that the Quran in chapter 60, verse 8 says, God does not prohibit you from dealing kindly and justly with those who do not fight against you on account of their religion or drive you out of their homes. So that means you shouldn't look to attack a non-combatant or someone who, because of their religion, just believes differently than you. But we know that that's exactly what ISIS has done. They have taken those people, and they bring them to a point where you're supposed to say, convert, die, pay a tax. And the tax is supposed to be, how will you support the system that will then take care of you, because you're not born into it. But the way that it becomes is, you've lost your house because you were Christian. At this point, now would you like to convert? You say no. Well, then now we'll create an enormous tax for you to pay. And if you take too long to think about it, we'll kill you in the meantime. And by too long, it's sometimes a moment or two. And the decision is made, and there's no backing away from that decision. The Quran is supposed to teach that you treat other people of other faiths well as long as we're all living in peace. They have not attacked you. Because of your faith, you don't attack them. And again, we would say that the idea of ISIS here and Al-Qaeda would behave in a different way. So then a moderate Muslim might say, it's not the fact that ISIS uses violence to bring about a caliphate that that is in and of itself wrong. It's that they are practicing violence in an unjust way. That would be there. The Jesus way. Alright? Let's shift gears a little bit here. We follow Jesus. That's who our focus is. That's what guides us for life. That makes us people of the person. And this is an incredibly different distinction. That means when, when people say there are complications about the translations of our scriptures, which there are. We never said that the Bible is the exact words of God. We've translated it so many times. From so many different languages into so many different places we know it's the summary of what God said the point is the gospel the point is what Jesus did not the exact word of what he said so when Jesus came and died on the cross we say yeah if you want to say Jesus came and died on the cross that's fine if you want to say Jesus after he came died on the cross it's still okay right it's not the exact wording it's not the exact phrasing that we're about We're about the point of the message. So whether that was in Greek or whether that was in Aramaic, whether that's Hebrew or German or English or that newfangled translation called the message, my goodness, the point remains the same in this. And so we use the scriptures as God-inspired word given to us, but we don't argue about a letter, word order. It's not the same sort of thing. Our focus is, what does it look like is what does jesus look like that was the key and so our focus is the person we value our scriptures we treat them with great respect and integrity and we'll learn a lot from them but we don't have to be terrified when someone burns a bible either when someone defaces one when someone treats a bible with lack of care it's not a crime against god that must be punishable by death we don't recommend it it's not a good idea but we serve a risen Savior, not a book. It's an important distinction in the way that we live. Okay, when we see the Jesus, um, we see the perfect representation of the Father. What is God the Father like? He looks like Jesus. What's his attitude like? It's the same as Jesus. Now, when we're going to go, um, we're going to look at a couple passages in the book of Mark to hear what Jesus had to say about those two key differences. Because it's important to get his perspective on what he had to say about his deity and his death. Because those are central issues to Christians. Did Jesus believe that he was going to die? Do the scriptures say that he died? Who did he think he was? Was he a prophet? Yes, he would agree with that, but he was more. So we're going to do that. Uh, We're going to highlight. I gave you a couple more that are written down in the notes there so that um, if you wanted to go and look at some more places, you could do that. But this is good stuff to be able to get into the, the heart of what Jesus was about. All right? So these are good places if you need to enter into a dialogue. I didn't say an argument. I said a dialogue. We want to be able to have a place that we can reference for communication. we can look at Mark 8 and Mark 12. Gospel of Mark. Why are we going to go there? Well, because our Islamic friends and many other critics would say the book of John, for example, is much more overt in the way that it presents Jesus. It's much more overt in saying that. But it also happens to be the latest addition to the bible so the book of john would be dated at the 90s so almost a century after the birth of jesus now an ancient text kind of evaluation that's still incredibly current but someone who wanted to find a problem could say well that sounds more like someone editorializing what happened instead of simply reporting what happened so they would say we don't like The book of John, it can be corrupted. We go, all right, give you that. We don't need to argue about that part. The reason we choose the book of Mark is it's tracked as the earliest gospel. And in fact, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They're the first ones. There's evidence to say that Matthew used Mark as a text when he was writing, and Luke, the same thing. They would use Mark as the first one. So they would agree that it was the most early version of trying to tell the story and that's significant so we go back to the very beginning of that and in that people would say jesus doesn't talk the same way in matthew mark and luke as he does in john well how do we know you go to john what's the first verse of john john chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word who's the word and the word was with god and the word was god According to John, do you believe that Jesus is God's son? It's the first verse. John's saying, okay, before we go any farther, before we read anything else, I need to tell you, based on the life that I've lived, what I've seen, what I've been a part of, you can't understand this unless you start with this. And so that's the way he starts to tell his story. The other Gospels don't tell it in the same way, and so they're less overt. Now there becomes a problem because all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus because it's central to Christianity. And so they would say, yeah, we think John is more corrupt, but you know what? All Gospels are corrupt because they talk about this part. And so there's question there. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at Mark because Mark is the, the place that is the, the source. What did Jesus say? What did he teach? How did he describe himself in there? Does he teach the same sorts of things that John emphasizes or is John just making the whole thing up? And so we're going to uh, flip there to start to Mark chapter 8. We're looking for deity and we're looking for death. Those are the things. Because they're presenting Jesus not so much as the Son of God, but a Jewish in-house reformer who was there to say, we've got to top up this Jewish religion. We need to straighten some things out. We need to get it right. And less of um, God's Son coming in to make a new start. Right? He's a prophet. He's not God's Son. So start at Mark 8, 31. Without further ado, the death and the deity of Jesus. Falling metal bars. Um, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This was the teaching that he was providing to his apostles. This is what must happen. This is what will happen. This is my belief in my participation, in what's going to go on? Go on. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside because of it and began to rebuke him. From within the disciples, they are hearing about what their Messiah is going to do, and it makes no sense to them in the same way that it makes no sense to a Muslim who's reading into the story. This is not the way things happen. This is not what victory looks like. This is not what God does. It doesn't make sense. Why would the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ... Why would he suffer pain? Why would he suffer humiliation? Why would he allow himself to be crucified? Why would God allow it? Obviously he wouldn't, therefore it didn't happen. Why would he appear to be defeated? Because God always wins, right? So they rejected the idea entirely. And it's the same struggle that the apostles were going through. They're still learning about these things. They haven't had generations of people saying this is just the way things are and when they first approached it it was mind-bending for them i can't believe this is all my life i believed the messiah would come and set us free and they believed set free meant this and jesus said i'm the messiah and i'm going to come and set you free but i mean this same words different meanings and so peter had a problem with it the rest of the apostles probably had a problem with it and lots of people have problems with it god would never allow this to happen Go on. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now I can understand why, in human terms, this looks bad, Peter, but this is what I'm here to reveal to you. I get why you can't see the grand scheme, because I'm revealing it to you right now. The big plan here is more than you thought. But your plan, your understanding is just not the plan of God. You must not prevent me from dying. Jesus sees his death as central to his mission. And he begins to teach the apostles right here. This is the big part. Not only does Jesus say that his death is the centerpiece of his salvation plan, but he indicates that death is the centerpiece to our discipleship plan, the living out of what Jesus is about. The cross of Christ and his willingness to die for for his enemies not only communicates God's heart to us, it also offers us salvation from our sin, but it also sets us an example because he did it for those who love him and those who do not. That style of living is indicated here. goes on. Then he called the crowd to him, the disciples and everyone around. And he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. This is sales pitch. All right, everyone, gather around. I got the good stuff for you. Here it is. This is what I'm telling you. You've got to deny yourself and you've got to pick up your, your, your method of humiliation, service, and death. Then come on with me. Who's in? You can imagine all kinds of people said, I'm not into that. I don't want any part of that. People who were just getting started with Jesus, thrown right off. People who were thinking, maybe I should start getting serious. How would they respond? People who were even in would say, this is not what I thought you meant when you said those other things. Just so you know, the cross is the way that I'm calling to you also. Not just for me, but for you. Be willing to give your life in the service of others to lay down your life in love for others your friends your neighbors your cousins and your enemies that's pretty radically different than anybody else who's teaching this sort of stuff for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul drop down to 9 1 and he says truly i tell you those who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This passage often gets used to say he's talking about second coming, when the kingdom of God comes in power. And here it's very clearly saying, I believe that in the midst of this oppressive society where Rome rules, that the kingdom of God will come in power. And that didn't mean political. It meant the spiritual kingdom of God will be unleashed and the world will forever be different because of it. Mark 12, that was uh, dealing with deity there. He's saying, no, that was dealing with death. He's saying that I'm going to die. That's part of the plan, and it's central to the plan. Mark 12, 1 to 12. We're going to burn through this. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, it's a parable. Mark is loaded with parables because this is the way Jesus teaches. So he calls out a group of people, but there's a lot of teachers of the law, Pharisees there. These are the ones criticizing him. And he says to them, uh, a man... Planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. The people got what God gave them. They've taken it. They think it's all theirs. They don't think that God has any part in it anymore. It's ours. We own it. We'll do with it what we want. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and they treated him shamefully, He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Jesus is telling the story of humanity. God creates. He leaves us in charge. We reject him as the owner. We treat it like it's ours. We can do with it what we want. He sends prophet after prophet to call us back. We reject them. We reject the message. We shoo them away. We kill some of them. What's the master going to do? He had one left to send a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. Jesus writes himself into the story. He says, this is who it is. I am not just another servant. He's recognizing, he's defining it as the last one. There's no one else coming. There's not another prophet that we would wait for. This is God's final voice on the subject and who he's going to send is fundamentally other than who he had sent before. Servants were great, but he's escalated now. I've got one left, my son. Not the same. And the people listening hear that he is self-identifying, right? He is saying, this is who I am. And we know that people got it because the Pharisees are all around him and they hated the story because of what he was doing about saying this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. The last one. The tenants have rejected but I'm here. What is the nature? What is the story of of what is going on here? What is the the method to success that Jesus is describing? Mark 10.45 has a great summary of what that looks like. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He calls himself the Son of Man, not the Son of God, because in this culture, everyone would call themselves a Son of God. They believed that they were part of the Israel, the chosen race, that God is our Father. That would not have been a statement that stands out. But Son of Man references Daniel, where it talks about uh, the end times, the prediction of this Son of Man who will come, who will be God's great gift. And so he's referencing that as a a prophetic literature to say, this is who I am. So when we read this, we say, son of man, it's not all of us. But in the culture that's hearing it for the first time, they're saying, oh, son of man, you're calling yourself. That's a whole different thing. You've claimed something of status there. Gave his life in freedom as a ransom for many. But before we criticize people who don't believe this or don't behave the way we do, you have to say, what does this call you to? What is your response to Christ as he's calling in this way to his teachings, to his lifestyle? How does that impact your lifestyle? Not what should others do because of this. Who will you be because of this? Who do you stand on because of Jesus? If you're going to engage in a dialogue, a conversation that goes back and forth, I'm I'm not a big believer that we bring apologetics necessarily to a, a discussion of faith. Apologetics brings us um, confidence in our faith. We are not to use it as a club to try and convince, believe in Jesus or you're stupid. But if you wanted to have a, a, a good question with a Muslim, a beautiful question would be to say, if Jesus didn't die on the cross and Allah protected him at that point, if Allah made him look like somebody else, then everyone around him was convinced of that. And if Allah didn't do that and he just saved his life, so that he never died. If that's the case, if this is what Allah did, why did he do that? Because Allah would then be directly responsible for the creation of us. We are the ones who believe Jesus died on the cross. We are the ones who believe that. How did we come to that conclusion? Because of what Allah showed us. He deceived us. Why would Allah deceive us? Why would He allow that to happen? Why would He allow an entire faith to spring up to worship what was wrong, wait 570, 580, 590 years to send us a prophet who was going to tell us that what we believed was wrong? But we only believed in what was wrong because we believed What Allah showed us. Why would He do that? Why would He deceive us? Why would He generate a false religion? To what end does that come? It's a worthwhile point of conversation. Father, thanks for the gift of Jesus. Thanks for what uh, you have done for us through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Thanks for the way that you have set us free. Thank you for dying. Thank you for living on this world, but thank you for coming back, rising to life again to show that you are victorious. You have conquered the grave. You own life. You own death. These are things that no longer need um, to cause us fear because you have overcome them. You are our hope and our strength. God, cause us to live again more and more like you. In grace and in truth, set us free, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, brothers, sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for participating and singing and worshiping and and praying and being part of this story. It's better because you were here today, and so I'm thankful that you were.